Welcome to Script to Screen's Talks podcast. Script to Screen is a charitable organization dedicated to developing the craft and culture of storytelling for the screen in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Part of our annual program, the talk series, brings the creative community together to hear inspirational speakers delve into their creative process, craft, philosophy, or the broader creative landscape. Many of us long to see ourselves and our communities represented on screen. Filmmakers are in the unique position of being able to bring to life the diverse characters and worlds we want to see. But with power comes responsibility. Dr. Suzanne Woodward talks to Shuchi Katari, Stallone Vayonga Yuasa, and Josephine Stewart Defew about how they find the sweet spot between great stories and responsible representation. So what I'd like to do, I think, is get each of you, and in the order we saw the clips, to just say a little bit about yourself and why you chose those particular clips in relation to tonight's topic. Shuchi? Um, why did I pick these um, clips? Random order. I think coffee and I love for very obvious reasons. Um, I genuinely, I think we say this often and, and sometimes flippantly, sometimes meaningfully, but something did change for me about the way I feel about being here after March 15th. And um, it just made me want to go back to the moment when we'd done this film in a very um, happy place in, in our hearts. Like we were really um, thinking about, you know, we loved the fact that the film had traveled, the film had done really well, it had moved people, it had spoken. But it was a response to what had happened in London in um, July 2005, the bombs in... So I'd written it as a response to that. I was in London, left the day um, the Piccadilly line um, um, blew up. So um, it just made me reflect about what has changed, what hasn't. And I thought I wanted a clip from Coffee Nala to bring to this uh, um, forum tonight. Um, thousand apologies, because we have a lot of fondness for that very um, sometimes bawdy, sometimes lowbrow, sometimes, you know, sharp and funny, sometimes we don't know why we did that sketch kind of sketch comedy show that we've done. Um, Serena, um, the co-producer um, on Thousand Apologies, is here, and she'll remember that when we pitched this project, there was nothing on Asian as an Asian show on primetime television in New Zealand. So this was a big deal for us, and we formed a Thousand Apologies collective with Roseanne Liang, um, who you, most of you know, Roseanne, and you know the work she does, um, with Angeline Liu, who's also a writer, Chris Payne, who's now with the Film Commission. So it was a you know motley crew of, of people from the university who thought we wanted to challenge what it meant to be Asian, um, being and becoming Asian in New Zealand. So Thousand Apologies comes from there. And then um, Apron Strings was a co-written feature that I wrote with um, lovely Diane Taylor and Seema um, directed Apron Strings. And there was a, a kind of a reflection on a, a cross-cultural story about um, sameness and difference, really. If I was to boil it all down, then, then it was a way to think about what makes us mothers and sons and mothers and daughters and all that kind of complicated, but also very similar ways in which we torture each other across cultures and within. So, Thanks, Shuch. Stallone? Talo uh, Falava, my name is Stallone Vaya Ongayuasa. Uh, I'm credited as SQS in my films because that's my brand. Um, and also because when you see Stallone on screen, everyone goes, oh, Sylvester Stallone, ah, no. Um, but thank you, Dad. Um, I, I chose that clip from Three Wise Cousins. Uh, I think probably best represents the film as sort of a, 
a fish out of water story, um, but also it was, uh, I guess, a different take on it in terms of Pacific representation, in particular Samoan representation, that the two Samoan characters are the ones that know most. Um, and it's sort of a coming of age story. Um, but also, to some degree, it was about casting certain actors who I knew were very funny, um, but would be very funny to a Samoan audience in particular. So it was sort of like not looking at their track record as uh, actors. Um, it was just being very particular in that they didn't have to sort of, they just had to be themselves um, to some degree. Um, and uh, at that particular time, there was, I guess, Three Wise Cousins was caught in between not quite being Sionez and not quite being the orator. It was sort of like a, almost a, sort of trying to be a mainstream film, but it just didn't have that same sort of feel to it. And it was very, uh, at the time, when I, asked, when I told people, oh, I'm making a feature film and someone cast, and they were like, oh, why? And I'm like, oh, thank you for the encouragement. Um, <laughs> um, um, you know, and it, it was a self-funded film as well. Um, so it meant that uh, the, the decisions were mine and they were mine to carry. Uh, from that particular clip, uh, there's two non-actors who play from Samoa, uh, Vito Vito and Fisuya Ivuliamu. And one, I guess, we had one actor uh, from New Zealand who plays the New Zealand-born Samoan going back to be a real island guy uh, in order to impress a girl. Um, the new Amitonai was the only, only one who I auditioned for the film. And it was interesting when I was going through the, I guess, the agencies, and you type in, oh, male, oh, Pacific, oh, 20s, and then, and then uh, there's not that many. It was hard to pick, and, you know, and unless, and I guess at that time I didn't have enough foot on, uh, I guess, enough knowledge or on the ground, I wasn't going through the theater scene, because I like movies. Um, it's, um, and so I didn't really know, and, it, and, even, and even for me, it opened up my eyes, I'm like, oh, wow, if I'm not out there, looking for talent, then I'm not going to find it unless, you know, uh, unless someone recommends it to me. And so in terms of representation, finding the right people, you know, even if directors, if we want to find the right people, uh, it does require a bit more groundwork than using the sort of the casting agencies to find the absolute right person, if you're not. Um, for Hibiscus and Ruthless, uh, second feature film, which came out last year, uh, also self-funded because I like pain. Um, it's... Uh, um, it's, I chose that clip because it best represents in one go the, th the different characters I wanted, in particular uh, Hibiscus. The main thing when we cast for Hibiscus was someone who was fluent in Samoan. Uh, and that, right off the bat, that cut off a lot of people. Just being able to speak it was not enough. They had to have a fluency that to a Samoan ear, but for half a second, if, you're, if you don't have it, they'll know. And as much as I'm not fluent, I will know when I hear it. I know when I hear it on screen. There are a couple of times when it's uh, in proper feature films where they speak Samoan and it's cringe. It just doesn't feel right. Even though technically, uh, grammatically, it's all correct, it's just not how Samoans from Samoa would speak. So that's uh, Suiwai Altangawaya who plays Hibiscus and she, she knew right off the, off the bat what type of character we wanted and she had the, the Samoan fluency down. Um, and there is the, the mother character, Samoan mother. And I wanted a particular Samoan mother, not the classic sort of the mama who wears the big mumu, the big traditional dress and sort of shouts. And, you know, I wanted a, a, a modern professional woman who looks like she does CrossFit. Um, <laughs> and she does do CrossFit. <laughs> and, uh, I, and, uh, and so I wanted uh, within these small increments to just change the sort of uh, representation. I just wanted something different, something that... Uh, that is, uh, sits outside what's, what, what I would normally see. 
and in, in relation to that, um, Ruth, the character of Ruth, um, is sort of the, the Balangi girl who comes into a Samoan family and who could pass as a Samoan, could pass as being half-caste, simply because she carries herself um, as a Samoan girl, um, and a Samoan girl who knows she can get away with stuff in a Samoan family because she's Balangi. And so uh, Anna Marie Thomas, who plays that character, had three months to become Samoan, and she grew up in Christchurch on a dairy farm. <laughs> um, but it's a testament to her, to her, to the strength of her acting craft that she, you know, she really broke it down, down to the alphabet, learning Samoan alphabet, living with uh, hibiscus or uh, suivai to, to know what it's like to be a Samoan girl. Um, but her character was important because I wanted to show someone who could just go between cultures and it, and it didn't really matter that the ultimate thing that she was looking for was family. Um, so that's the important thing. But for, in terms of what I wanted the audience to get, I wanted the audience to look at Ruth and just think that she was, she really was raised in a Samoan family. Thank Josephine. So mine was the last one. Um, it's from a short film I made at the end of uh, last, this time last year really, called Ane. I was one of the writers on Wadu. I'm gonna assume you've seen it. If you haven't, it's like an omnibus feature film about child abuse. It's made by nine Māori women. And um, I made Ani as a response to that. I really wanted to make a film where a Māori man kind of wasn't seen as violent or messed up. So that's why I showed Ani the clip. It's a short film about a dad and his daughter. I cast Maka, similar, just going off what you were saying. Um, he was my producer's idea. And as soon as she said that, I thought, yes, we've never seen a big Māori man covered in tattoos doing a really beautiful, sensitive role and being a kind, good father and a kind, good man. And so my goal was to flip the script with it. I actually got into a fight with him, <laughs> this guy, who was like, I'm going to make a trailer for your film. And I was like, okay. So he sent me the trailer and he cut it together in a way where it read like the dad was violent. And I came back to him and I was like, this isn't what I want and this is not what the story's about and this is not what the story I want to tell. And he was like, but it will sell your film. And I said, no, it fucking won't. It's going to do the exact opposite. It's going to feed into the same old narrative and the same old bullshit that we hear over and over again. My argument was that the film would do better with a trailer that went against that grain. Um, and he disagreed. So we're no longer working together. Plus, if he used the phrase, it'll sell your film for a short, then he didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> Thank you. So following on from that, what Josephine, what you were saying about you know, wanting to challenge stereotypes, wanting to put a different story out there from the, from the one that people are used to seeing. In the creative process, how much time mentally or emotionally do you invest, I suppose, in, in the politics of representation as part of the creative process? And obviously I'm aware that this is a question that Pākehā filmmakers don't tend to get asked, but that's why we're here. So, I mean, is it something that you feel a lot of pressure to consider during the creative process? Um, I guess I'm just trying to be authentic. Like, I'm mixed. My mum is Pākehā, obviously. My dad is Māori. I look white, but 
I'm half Māori and I know that there's a privilege that comes with looking white. I was very aware of it from a young age when I watched my dad growing up. So I'm just trying to tell really authentic and true stories that are true to me. I wasn't raised on marae. I went to a kohanga reo and I went, I was immersion at intermediate, but I'm not fully immersed in the culture and that's something I'm relearning now as an adult. So I would never attempt to tell a story that was really deep in Māori history and culture because I'm not ready and I'm not the right person to tell that. But I feel like I'm the right person to tell I guess, modern stories about what it means to be Māori. And that's why on Wadu, our piece, there was hardly any te reo in it because at the time I didn't know enough te reo and I wasn't willing to write it in because it didn't feel authentic. I would have felt like an asshole doing that, you know. I, I guess it's just about being true to myself and I hope it reflects on screen. I think it makes for better work. It's interesting, I mean, in terms of... Stallone, what you were saying about the authenticity of language and, and people know. So what your awareness of how much is your awareness of the audience or your the audience that you hope for a part of it? And how much is, is the kind of sense of, as Shuj was saying, you know, don't sell short films, but those market pressures as well of trying to negotiate what how do I how do I get a film out there that gets to the audience I want it to get to and still negotiate all of those kind of market pressures, especially when you're self-funding your films? Um, I think one thing, the big lesson from Three Wise Cousins, for those that don't know, um, we made it for 80 grand and it made 2.3 million worldwide. So, um, so that was easier than winning a lotto. Um, uh, but the, the big lesson I got out of that was that the, the what is it? Um, being culturally relevant and commercially successful aren't mutually exclusive. Mm. That, and that's particular, especially when it comes to knowing your audience. If there's one reason, like we got turned down by the exhibitors when we, because we'd self-distributed as well uh, for Three Wise Cousins and we took it around they're like, oh, this is a great film, but we're not sure if there's an audience for it. Um, the actual issue wasn't the fact that it was a Pacific film. To some degree it was, but the actual issue was that it was self-funded and self-distributed. And there was no commercial precedent for a self-funded, self-distributed film um, to be commercially successful in New Zealand. So for those filmmakers out there who do it, who, who try to take a film now, at the very least you'll get the benefit of doubt. So you're welcome. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, like, it is, it is. There's, um, oh, look, that's probably the wrong context, but just, yeah, there, there's, there, there's a need for certain films then looking for certain niches to fill because there's only so many Marvel films that can come out. Um, but Endgame was awesome. Um, uh, but in terms of what, the, that what I'm thinking about is that the extra pressure for me when casting and writing this is I have to answer to my community. Mm. Um, like, I, like, I'd rather have the film be right for the community and do commercially, like lose money because to lose faces in the community uh, cuts deeper. Um, and so there's that pressure right from the start and it comes down to casting the right people even to fill the gaps in terms of my, where I lack knowledge. So uh, Vito Vito who plays Mosse in there, he, he's like a true island guy, a true Samoan guy, he has a Matai title and he, like I got really lucky to find him and to cast him because he understood what we needed for the film and he understood, you know, just how far we could push 
elements of Samoan culture. What was too far, what didn't make sense, um, what was right for a, a Samoan audience. So for me, um, there's a lot of energy that does go into thinking about the character, what the characters do, and then that starts all up again when we cast. Can this actor bring what, uh, be authentic to an audience? You know, not, not and that's, that's a starting point. Or an audience look at Suivaya Otangavaya as hibiscus and say, yep, that's a Samoan girl who grows up in a strict household and is not allowed to go out or have a boyfriend even though she's 23. Um, you know, that, those are the sort of questions we're constantly asking. You know, um, for Ruth even, we're like, uh, is she, is she going to pass as someone who, you know, who grew up in a Samoan family? You know, there's no other character like that on screen and we're building it from scratch. Um, so in many ways, we have to get it right, you know. Um, and I know at the same time, it's about protecting your actors. You know, um, if, they, if we put them in a position where we're giving them a character that's really way outside what they, they think they can do, um, then, you know, we, we sort of carry that burden to, to protect them from an audience and a real and you know audience who would who would be very quick to judge. But at, at the same time, as you were saying to me earlier, you have also the potential to build amazing careers if you if you invest in in the actors that you trust as a filmmaker. Shuchi, what do you think the difference is in terms of those pressures and politics between making comedy and making drama? I mean although there's obviously elements of comedy in your drama and dramatic elements in the comedies, but is the pressure different? Um, I will answer that, but I want to link something to what Stallone said with your previous question, Suzanne. You talked about, I would, not, I would rather lose money than to lose face or the affection of my community. Um, and it's a very positive idea, and I really applaud you for it. And I, I know where you come from, I know you as a person. But if I was to take that statement, then that's exactly the statement that I read often as the burden of representation. That if you are talking about communities that are not often on screen, then you bear the burden of getting it right in a way that others don't. And that sometimes means and I just don't mean like, oh, you have to work 10 times harder. I don't mean that. But it's about that constant um, negotiation between um, certain impulses, uh, certain kind of pressures of production, and at the same time knowing that, yes, this will find the right place in my community, but not everybody will like it. Because I think the death of this kind of endeavor is try to write something or make something that everyone you know is going to find this unanimous approval because i often find or maybe my community is more cruel than yours stallone which is very likely um, <laughs> you know that that i will find a, a lot of uh, I mean, there are, there are Indians who are very pissed off when they saw a thousand apologies. But every time they found a sketch where they were not being laughed at, then they loved it. Then, you know, then a sketch comes along when you're kind of pointing out the problems within the Indian community and they get all defensive and say, oh, I don't think that needed to be there, you know. So um, it, it is harder. With, with, I find difference um, is more easily accommodated in comedy than drama. Um, I think UK is a classic um, case where for years and years, if you were on TV, you had to be a cool, funny Asian. And by Asian in the UK, they meant South Asian, right? 
Um, you couldn't be a cool South Asian doing drama. No, you had to be a cool South Asian doing comedy because the drama was still in the realm of stories where there was, you know, let's talk stories of domestic abuse, let's tell stories of, you know, um, um, how Indians treat uh, female infanticide, you know, all, all these stories that they wanted to recycle. And of course, uh, you know, th as the chorus, female intensify, arrange marriage, domestic abuse, arrange marriage, you know, like everything had to come down to arrange marriage. And that, people had to fight that very much. And I don't think very much has changed, to be honest, but comedy has allowed where there is more diversity, there is more diverse representation, but that itself is a problem sometimes because I feel if you want to talk about serious storytelling, you struggle um, if, if you come from um, no, not the mainstream storyteller. In thinking in, in terms of that, Josephine, if you think about the, the not the mainstream, how do you kind of negotiate those intersections between different, those different aspects of your identity. So for example, being a woman, a Maori woman filmmaker, gender and ethnicity and how those fit together and, and does that change the sorts of pressures that you feel? Oh my God, I know, and I'm gay, so like, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> um, yeah. I just have sort of given up on mainstream. Just going to tell the stories that I tell, and I really hope that other people like it. I mean, I'm sorry, I know, like, I don't have a really beautiful academic answer for that, but that's kind of the point where I've gotten to. Like, I can't tick all the boxes and it pisses me off when I know I took a funding box for someone um, because I've got too few in my name or I'm a woman or I'm a lesbian. Like, it's just kind of shitty. So I'm just trying to tell the stories that I'm telling. Does that sort of answer your question? What? Yes. No. Yeah. It, no, it does. Because I think part of this goes back to what Chuchi was saying around that burden of representation, of being expected to represent your, yeah. your group, whatever your so group I is. So I sort of, I know I'm not going to please everyone. I just know that and I accept that. And especially within the Māori community, everyone's got an issue with something. And that's okay, you know, and so they should, good. Fight it and stick your hand up and say something if it doesn't feel right. I have respect for that as long as it's not hurtful. That's okay with me. I think... I mean, my secret is just rein them in with comedy and stab them with some drama when they're not looking right at the end of the film. <laughs> you know, like hook them in with the laughs because you're right, you get them with the laughs and you're like, pull them in, pull them in and then at the last minute you go, you know, what are you laughing at? Is yeah. it this? And it's... <laughs> but it's a good way to sort of drive your message or what you're trying to say or, or get it across. And people feel safe if they can laugh at brown people, I guess, which is kind of fucked up, but it's a way in. Yeah. I see what you mean. Shush, yeah? No, it's just saying, um, I think, uh, though, still on your point is really, really well taken because I think about this a lot. Um, you know, you're a consummate director, you're wonderful, but you also know your audience. You always have, this is your greatest strength. This is, the, this is something no one can pay um, 
to learn or pay to teach. You know what I mean? Like you, you have this sense. And because you are so clear about that, you confuse sometimes people who speak in structures and tones. And, and I remember this conversation. They said, how come so many Indians go to watch Bollywood cinema here? Like, oh my God, the opening night of some big Bollywood film, there's no tickets to be had, right? Like, uh, it's just insane, absolutely insane. So they said, why, why will they not come to watch other films here? And I said, because if I pitch to you a film that you read, and looked and sounded like Bollywood, you wouldn't fund it. It would not make you, you would actually look at it and go, oh, this, I don't think it's ready, you know, this is not. It just would not work. The, the kind of, the community that wants this, wants this for a whole host of reasons this forum is not right for. But you need to acknowledge that you don't have your pulse, your finger on the pulse of that audience, because if you did, you would be looking at a different aesthetic, you would be looking at a different narrative, you'd be looking at, you know, and this is not like me trying to say I desperately want to make films about, you know, women tiny clothes gyrating and then wearing saris at the end of, you know, I've got major problems with Bollywood of my own, that's a different thing. But you know what I'm trying to say? It's like about understanding who are you making films for? And there is a respect in that. There's huge amounts of respect from a filmmaker's perspective. I think when, in one of my first meetings with an exhibitor, they said to me, look, a lot of filmmakers come in, they pitch their film, they tell us about how hard they worked, and um, they give it a big spiel. But as exhibitors, they sit there, and the main question they want, to, they want an answer for is, who's the audience? And if you say, ah, oh, old people, young people, um, old and young, male and female, like, that, like they, say, um, they, they would say to me, I'm not making this up, this is what filmmakers tell us. And a lot of filmmakers probably go to them and, and not as distributors. That's the main thing. They don't, and they don't know the audience. You know, you've made a film, cool shot, well done, but your film is a product in that, in that space. And when I went in there, I said Pacific Islanders, and that was it. You know, I, and they said, you know, you're probably one of the few filmmakers who come in here who know exactly who the audience is. And that was, one of, that was the saving grace for me. You know, they, they gave me one cinema <laughs> of that answer. They said, look, will I buy a ticket to this film? No, but someone will. And so if you can fill up and it, I did, and like, like I said, oh, but I said, can you make that cinema available two weeks before it opens? You know, and make tickets available online. And I said, they said, yeah, sweet. And I said, and if it sells well, can you give me like another one? <laughs> and they said, oh yeah, we're not gonna say no to money. Um, and so yeah, within within the space of two hours, we almost sold out that that cinema, and then that pretty much started the avalanche. But in terms of uh, knowing the audience, I would agree with Suchi to some degree. Uh, want to yeah. Because I, I, I know my audience and I know and I've learned, especially from conversations recently, that sometimes when I say, look, I want to put in, uh, in my new film called Take Home Pay. In that particular film, we cast uh, Tofinga uh, Fipuliai. He's from Laughing Simon's fame, which you may or may not know. He's been uh, doing stand-up shows for over 10 years. Um, and within the Simon, I guess the Pacific community, he is, he is second to the rock in terms of being well-known and recognized. And when I said, this is our lead, the response I got was, have you considered the usual suspects? Basically, other island actors who have a track record. And at that moment, I realized, oh, you don't know what you're doing. Um, because if, if you work at, you know, for example, let's say a million dollars for box office, work out how many tickets you need to sell to hit a million. You know, it's less than 100,000. Um, 
And then if there's 260,000 Pacific Islanders here in New Zealand, most of them in Auckland, most of them will go to Mannix or I'll say Monaco or Sylvia Park, you know, then you start to hit high numbers off your niche audience. You know, a niche audience, but a guaranteed audience. That's where your commercial success kicks in. And especially if it's a low budget film, then your return on investment, these are all good words to use for investors, um, um, you know, kicks in. And so it's, yes, I know we have burden representation, and but less of a burden, more about, I guess, tweaking it to look at more like, this is where the money's at, you know, correct representation for your audience. There's a, a quote that I really like from The Camera on the Shore, the Barry Barkley documentary, and he said, you're having yourself on if you think the camera is neutral. And you need, in a way, I believe, to look at who you are making the film for and exactly what kind of truth you're telling. So I think perhaps we should open it up to questions from the audience and then maybe we can get some closing final thoughts from you three. So does anyone have a question that they would like to ask? When you're talking about the figures and stuff, doesn't that effectively the job of the producer? I mean, it's wonderful that you're doing it, but if you have a producer doing that, do you still need to be part of that if you're the, the director? No, yeah, I mean, as if, you're, if your producer does that, then they're a good producer. If they don't, then... Do you, um, do you find that you would say produce and produce your own film that you're directing as well? I guess, yeah, I'm here with my sister, who's my actual producer, and we basically do that together. It's, 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 yes, it is a producer's role, and in many ways it's your distributor's role. But if you're, since we're doing all that, we sort of have to carry it, and we start it right from the start. Um, but yeah, it is your producer's role to, to, to kind of crunch all those numbers and work it out. And then when you're going for funding, that's the sort of numbers you're putting forward. I mean, there are some films being made, they're being funded, and I'm like, oh, I'd love to see your application because your numbers are rubbish. Because, <laughs> yeah, it was like, oh, the audience, that the box office for some of these films, I'm wondering, Sheiks, what were you aiming for? You know, it's one thing to aim high and sort of not quite hit the mark, but to be way off. You know, you have to be really honest that the New Zealand market is a tiny market, you know, for, what, four and a half million people, but how many of those are active cinema goers? How many of those could you actually transition or convert to go to the cinema? You know, think about the last time you went to the cinema, how much effort that took, you know, <laughs> you know um, what took you to get there because that's your job. You know, you, your distributor, even if you get distribution, you still have to carry the load because a distributor, if you're not hitting strong in that first week, um, you know, can your distributor pivot? Can they find, go to plan B to try and get your film in front of people, get people in there? Most of the time, they have a huge slate of films. If yours doesn't hit the mark, cool, let's move on to the next one. Um, so I think that's one thing, I guess, that I've learned. You know, as a distributor, you have to have, you know, it's, you're fighting for that, what is it, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You have four days to prove that your film is good because on the Monday, the exhibitor chooses, they line it all up, and then they take, oh, we only have space for 14 this week. If your one's outside that, that gets bumped. That's just that's the reality of it. Timing is really important uh, for for release of a film as well. Any other questions? I'm wondering why there was no Middle Eastern representation on the screen tonight. Was it because we were looking at the representation that was given by the, the people that are talking? Because you know, being a Middle Eastern actress and filmmaker, I often find there is no representation here, even though effectively it is Asia. We don't get considered Asian, you know, and. Um, 
even someone on the film commission indirectly, it was through someone else that I found out the question whether or not Iran is actually in Asia when the whole scheme of the funding was up for Asians. The whole, yeah, so and I hope they said yes. Well, I think that there was a doubt, but then the answer in the end was yes. But I guess what I'm saying, what I'm talking about is the education, because um, especially since March 15th and the whole of the Um, there, there will be, there are, we have to fight and come talk to me afterwards and join PASC, the Pan-Asian Screen Collective, you're great. Because that's, that's the one bit we're doing very actively and, you know, rigorously. Um, we have got people like Ghazali Goldbakhsh who have received official development funding who are taking their features forward. She's from Iran, as you know. So, um, which is not to say that Ghazali has to be the burden of representation for, you know, every other person whose dreams will never come to the fore. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is that, and I speak as, as someone who's Kiwi Indian, I guess, I can call myself that. That it has been, it, it, it is a struggle. It, it's absolutely not a level playing field of any kind at all. And just because every now and then we have got beautiful films made by minority filmmakers that receive accolades and travel and do really well, doesn't mean that, you know, that has changed the way people look at um, the politics of production in this country. In fact, if I, was to wind up, that's where I would, that we need to be looking at production. And that's something Stallone has actually ended up doing through his talk without really perhaps, you know, being asked to specifically that the politics of representation is in the politics of production. Who is making? What are you making? How are you making? Who is funding? And, and this is what we need to be, you know, constantly remaining vigilant about. And for those of us who have a stake in it as people of color, fighting for it all the time. Yes. I'll go first. I'm sure you have an opinion about this because I have wrestled with that myself too. Whose, whose story can I tell, right? It's not just a white person's question. I think every creative person is asking that question. Is it my story? Is it my story to tell? And obviously on racial lines, this answer and question get more complicated. But I do think that if not, and I, I, this is just my personal opinion. If not enough people have had a chance to tell their story in their own voice, I don't want to take that story on. That's, mine is not the first story to be told. But if I'm a producer, if I'm enabling somebody to tell their story, how do I distribute power with them? How do I make sure that this remains their story? How do I... So it's not like, oh my God, you know, as, a, as an Indian person, I would never touch a story from... South Africa, because, you know, I'm not South African, but I would make sure that if that story has never been told before, the South African in our team is leading the project. And I'm doing the, the thing I need to enable 
them to be able to do that. And in a small country like New Zealand, I really firmly believe in that. I know it's a bit naive. It would not work in other parts of the world, but most of us here make stuff with, you know, government funding. So um, I think we do owe each other that much responsibility and not to have NAF things like cultural consultants who just brought in, you know, to say, hey, did I get this right? I was telling, um, I was in some other forum and I said to them, if somebody asked me, would so-and-so wear a sari or not? Which somebody did ask me, by the way. They were writing something and sent me an email saying, would this character from this part of India wear a sari? And I sent them an email of Gordon Ramsay making scrambled eggs, like a, a YouTube video. I said, yeah. This will help you. <laughs> so that, that's where I'm winding up for today. Yeah, I have to agree. I think you really need to ask yourself why you're telling that story. Really ask yourself, is it because diversity is in at the moment and you know you're going to get funding and it's more interesting? Why aren't you telling your own stories? I don't know, like... You said it far more eloquently than I did, but I, I do think that you really need to ask yourself that and you need to ask yourself what role you're taking within that and whether perhaps it's better for you to enable someone else to tell their authentic version of that story. And I guess it comes down to the individual and the project. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm like a mixed-race lesbian woman I'm not going to give you permission, you know. You need to give that to yourself. Don't seek me and ask me for it. That's not, you know, I'm not a fairy godmother. I'm not going to say, yes, you can make that film. It's You need to look within yourself and really honestly ask yourself, why am I telling this? And good collaborations are there historically. So I don't think this is a case where people don't have the right I just think there is a right way to go about it. Yes. And it's navigating that right way because there have been fantastic collaborations where people, but both parties have come away feeling an intense, you know, passion for their project, a love for what they've done and got it right. So um, it, it's not about no can do, but it's how can do. And, and it does require an extra amount of vigilance. I think that's what you yeah. know, you're saying that you can't And, and just, respect, yeah. I guess, beyond getting a cultural consultant. Never a cultural consultant. <laughs> Still on? Uh, yeah, what they said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even tell a Tongan story. Um, I know Pacific Island gets, you know, cool. There's a big circle. You can tell anything inside that. But no, I, even I would hesitate um, unless I felt really strongly about it, as, uh, as was said before. But yeah. Um, we probably have time for one last question. If. Uh, my question is uh, uh, just in regards to um, uh, given that you weren't given you have the commercial backing to Um, yeah, so I didn't go for funding because I didn't have a track record. I looked at pretty much the list and sort of extrapolated, well, if I go through the funding body, how long will it take? Oh, five years. Um, <laughs> um, and I go, oh, I don't have the time, patience, or and I don't like application forms. Um, so um, my plan was to make it and pretty much go to cinemas, not to film festivals. Um, basically, I said, look, the audience is right there. You know, they're down the road. Um, I just need to get it into Manukau at least. And I know they'll show up. And if it fails, it'll fail because it's a stink film. 
you know, um, or failed because it didn't hit the audience. Uh, and I would be all right with that. You know, it meant that as a filmmaker, um, I didn't get it right. And either I go, oh, cool, let's do something else. Let's do audiobooks. Um, or, um, or just, you know, but at least I would know. And um, it would be no one else's. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't have to, I wouldn't blame anyone else. It's not like I had someone above me saying, change the film this way and then it's stuffed up then I'll be like really angry that, you know, that someone else who has 10 years experience in the industry, um, um, then um, like, you know, I, I wanted to, that was, that was the plan. And so I was pretty confident after the film was finished that uh, we were ready to go into cinemas. But then when I got to the exhibitors, um, they, yeah, that was, it, it shook me a bit. I was like, sheiks, have I overestimated the, my film? You know, of being being accepted into into the cinemas because this this is it, and then so I was about to do the Eventbrite thing and basically book out cinemas and sell tickets manually, um, and then at the very least I could prove have a track record if I did go to a funding body later on. Look, here's how many tickets I sold manually, and I know how to use FPOS machine now. You know, um, like like that that was it. I was going look at the very least I'll get into cinemas, and that was that was the proof. Yep. Yes, so, um, yeah, so sorry, uh, Three Wise Cousins, Hibiscus, and oh, sorry, Three Wise Cousins, all um, self funded. That's my own money because I didn't buy a house. I should have. Um, <laughs> the way the housing market went. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then, but then Three Wise Cousins was successful enough to kind of make, allow me to do filmmaking full time, and it funded Hibiscus and Ruthless. And in turn, Hibiscus and Ruthless didn't do too badly. Um, uh, and then it allowed us to fund Take Home Pay, which is in cinemas for 5th of September. Follow us on Instagram. <laughs> this Facebook. is why he's very good. He's a verb now. You have to Stallone it. Yep. You know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's where the money's at. Yeah. Uh, did any of you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share? Long road ahead. Yes. I, it feels weird for me being up here as a Māori representative because I am mixed-raced. And I'm gay, which a lot of people have a problem with. Not in this room, I hope. And a woman. So, yeah, it's funny, like, talking about how you say you know your audience. I don't know if I know mine slash when people ask me who my audience is. I'm like, everyone in the whole world. <laughs> A.K.A. my mum and my friends. But, you know, like, I don't really know who that audience is. I just, I try to be as authentic to myself as I possibly can. And I really hope that that will universally resonate with people and will make them want to watch the film. I kind of wish I knew as much about money as you do. And I, <laughs> I just don't. But that's okay too. That's, yeah, that's my journey. Uh, I think for me in terms of telling stories that, so I guess turn on representation. Um, someone asked me, would I do a mainstream film? And I said, no, but I think long term, I feel these films, the audience will eventually come to the films that I make rather than trying to go there. Um, I feel that you know, Three Wise Cousins could easily have been set in the mainstream and I know what elements could have changed to make that happen. If the middle character was white, you know, if he was half cast, yeah, easily, you know, extra million. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's that. It's, but, but, but the thing is, the story wouldn't have changed. Everything else would have stayed the same. Yeah, yeah, I would have had a car. I would have... 
Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like the two, like the, uh, I felt that these stories pretty much can sell. Um, that in the long term, I'm talking about 10, 20 years from now, in terms of just co constantly making these films, eventually people find them. You know, a lot of people watch Three Wise Cousins on the plane because they can't escape. Um, <laughs> um, but they're more likely to give it a go. And I think just over time, and I feel in the same way that Hong Kong films have become universal. And I feel the same. That's for, I guess, Pacific Island films. Is it okay to sort of mark or the or the No, um, not so much mock, but when you offer critiques, right, you are going to have people in the community. And you can understand that for a lot of Indians who have felt living here, that we never see ourselves enough on the screen. So when you make a film with an Indian lead character, they expect that in some way it's going to validate their whole existence and their struggle. Um, and you can't take that lightly. At the same time, you can't be make that the guiding light for everything you write because, you know... Where's the reality of joy in that? So it is, it is a negotiation. I, I, for one, don't think it's easy for me to just go, oh, yeah, I feel like writing this. I'll just go ahead and write that. I can't do that. But, maybe, you know, that's, but these are individual struggles. I'm not even saying this is a struggle for every other South Asian writer. But we have decided to work with issues and then forget about the fact that, yes, some people will get pissed off. If you recall Serena the Thousand Apologies, a sketch where an Indian woman tells her Indian parents and parents-in-law that she's struggling with her husband, and then none of them are interested in her problems at all. None of them, you know, not the mother, not the father, not the father-in-law. And then finally she says, he hit me with an iron pointing at the husband. And I, as a mother, say, was it on? And she's like, no. And then I go, then, then what's your problem? You know? And that sketch did not go down very well with a lot of Indians, and they got really upset. But at the same time, the Shakti organization that works with women and domestic abuse in, for South Asians in Auckland wrote us a lovely little note saying, thank you so much for bringing out in public what we never talk about. So, you know, you have to truly know in your gut that this is the truth. I don't think you can mess with that. You can't do it for laughs. I think that's when it falls flat. But, but if you know this is the truth, then, then it's okay. That seems like a really good place to end. Know your truth. The, the more voices, the better. So can you join me in, in thanking Shuchi and Josephine and Stallone for coming? The talk series is proudly supported by the New Zealand Film Commission, Foundation North, Images and Sound, and White Studios. Music for the podcast was provided by Poddington Bear, and voiceover is Lucy Wigmore. <laughs>